Brick Moon Fiction presents A Monster Stalks the Range by Kelsey N. Narrated by Nicholas Thurkettle. Far out in the back country, storms come up without warning, and this was hardly an exception. Not even two hours since the first drops and already it was coming down in sheets, obscuring an already scant trail. I leaned into the wind, trusting my horse's instincts to take us where we needed to go. My own senses, save sight which was all but useless in these conditions, were occupied checking for any panicked cattle that might have bolted this way, or signs of immediate danger. The latter was the only reason I would have stirred from my farmhouse in this kind of weather. While storms like this were uncommon, the danger they posed was very real. Flash floods, poor footing that could send horse or cow into a ravine and break bones, lightning strikes if the conditions were right for it, all sorts of things. Generally, I left the cattle to their own devices. They're biddable creatures, and I have the advantage of being able to come to an understanding with them. But there's only so much capacity for thought in those bovine heads. Humans bred it out of them long ago. So while don't stray from these lands, or huddle up if strangers or coyotes come, are commands they can handle. Emergencies exceed them. So I faced the rain and pressed on. A small price to pay for a solitary life, free of real danger. As I came near to where I told them to graze, something unexpected intruded on my senses. Something familiar, skirting the edge of my consciousness, little more than a hint of an impression. But I trust myself, and knew that whatever it was, it had to be real. I halted my horse and sent my senses as far as they would reach, fighting the conditions that made sight useless, and dampened hearing and smell almost as much. But there was far more than that in my toolbox and I made use of them. There, some distance in front of me, I caught it, and focusing my vision I made out a figure stumbling across the plain. They carried a light, one of those waterproof lamps the miners use, although it wasn't doing them much good as they struggled through the muck. Their gait was strange even so, although I couldn't tell why. Tracking the figure, I realized they were heading for the lands of the native tribe who lived east of my ranch. I was on good terms with them, ever since I paid my respects upon taking over the Lazy K. We had an arrangement. They could cross my holding wherever they saw fit, so long as they didn't cause damage and kept an eye out for danger to my stock. It was possible that this was a member of their tribe, caught by the storm while returning home. It made sense, but the feeling that something was wrong persisted. That familiar sensation, what was it? The bawling of a cow brought me back to reality. It was close and clearly in distress. More urgent than the mystery of the interloper, I followed the sound to where the herd was all but in a panic. One of their numbers slipped into a gully and was in danger of being swept away by the rising water. Dismounting and grabbing a rope from my saddlebags, I set to work. Hard, dirty work that kept me distracted from any other concerns for far too long. The fact that a second cow, attracted by the distress of the first, fell in while I was pulling the first one free didn't help at all. It was hours before I found my way back to the shelter of the farmhouse, stripping off my thoroughly soaked clothing and throwing myself on the bed. By then I was so worn out that I couldn't even feel relief, only the need for sleep. Just as I was about to finally succumb to the darkness, something clicked in the back of my mind, and I realized what that familiar sensation was. The tantalizing smell of human blood.
It was two days of hard work later when I had to think about the event again. The storm went well into the next day and left me with repairs, relocating the cattle, still too treacherous a job to leave up to them alone, and general cleanup. It was honest work and I don't complain of that, but it leaves precious little time for mysteries. I heard them before I could see them. Riders, several of them, coming from the northwest. Ryan's Gulch, the biggest town in the area, lay over in that direction. Not exactly a metropolis, but a decent size for a frontier town. It was rare I went there, however. Better that I go to the big city a week's ride the other way, where nobody knew me. Either way, I didn't know what a mounted group would want with me, so I was on my guard from the start. They were a grim-looking bunch, eight of them and not a smile among them. At their lead was the hardest of the bunch, a man who had the attitude of someone who was used to getting his own way, by force if necessary. It only took a glance to know we weren't going to get along. Without so much as a by-your-leave, he led the group up to me, halting only feet away. He looked down with the contempt one shows for an insect at your feet. But I wasn't about to be cowed. Nothing for you here, I told him. Clear off. He snorted, not bothering to dismount. Ranch owner around? We got business. I strode up to his side, making sure the sun was at my back so he'd have to deal with the glare. You're talking to her, and you ain't got no business with Dakota Sal. That brought a laugh from the man, and he finally vaulted off the horse's back and stood in front of me. He had a good foot over my height, and he towered over me with a smirk that told me what I needed to know about his character. Now, little lady, he said, condescension creeping into his tone. Nothing to get all defensive about. Us menfolk, we got serious business to take care of, and all you gotta do is let us go about it. Y'all menfolk can go hang for all I care, I told him, looking him steadily in the eye. Now if you got something to say, say it and get out. I got work to get done. He laughed again. Well then, I'll lay it out. Old man Rutherford, he and his wife, got murdered last night. And we figure it's the engines over yonder what done it. We're looking to track that bunch down, and we were going to see if the owner wanted to come for the fun. It didn't sound like fun to me. I didn't know the Rutherfords well, just enough to know they were on decent terms with the natives, same as I was. The husband had an arrangement to take horses they raised and trained to market for them, with a healthy cut for himself. Something wasn't adding up, and the posse leader's attitude wasn't helping much. Nope, I said. I ain't giving you permission to cross. Go the long way around. With that, I turned and started to walk away, knowing he wasn't going to leave it at that. Sure enough, a hand landed on my shoulder. I could have torn it off right there, and I was sorely tempted. But instead, I let him turn me around to face him. Listen, missy, we ain't asking. We're telling. The bunch of us are going over to that reservation and grabbing us a killer, and either you're with us or you watch us go. That's the end of it. This time it was my turn to laugh. And I'm telling you that if one of your crew sets foot on my land without my say-so, that'll be the last step they take, and that ain't no idle threat. I stared into his eyes, not bothering to disguise the bloodlust I was starting to generate inside me. Without looking, I let my hand drop to my sidearm, making a show of cocking the hammer. The leader held my gaze, his own eyes surprised at what they were seeing. 
He spent a moment trying to stare me down before relenting. We ain't giving up on this. There's ranchers dead and a killer to take down still. Fine, I said. I'll take this up with the sheriff in town and you're all coming with me. I don't trust a blasted one of you and I don't feel like hunting you all down after the fact in case you go when I'm not looking. The sheriff's office was smaller than expected and clearly not used much. The same was true of the man himself. Sheriff Maxwell was a small, compact man, fit and able enough, but by his reaction of a dozen or so bodies filling up the space, the group picked up a few more followers along the way. It seems as if there was little call for his services. Once the initial shock passed, he seemed capable enough, but it said a great deal to me. What in tarnation is going on here? And who are you? This was directed at me, and no surprise given how rarely I showed my face in town. Before I had a chance to reply, the ringleader spoke up. Nothing you need to get involved in, Maxwell, he said with confidence. We got us a posse together after those damned engines killed the Rutherfords, and we're just looking for some justice. But this rancher here says her name is Dakota Sal. She ain't letting us do our civic duty. Now ain't that a shame? Maxwell's eyes narrowed and looked back and forth between me and the ringleader. His eyes returned to me and lingered for a moment before finally leaving again. So what are you doing here, Jed? You know I ain't got no... Jed cut in. We're here because the lady insists on getting your say-so. So we're getting it. That's all you need to know, got me? It seemed for a moment as if the sheriff was going to snap back, but he swallowed it and stood down. Visibly deflating, the sheriff averted his eyes and returned to his seat behind the desk. Very well, then. Sal, these men have a valid reason to cross your land and my blessing to do so. You can go with them if you like to make sure they don't hurt nothing, but you will not impede them, or else I'll have to step in. Now, if that's all, you know where the door is. A snicker from Jed in response almost sent me over the edge. I'm an even-tempered person, usually. You need to be when the consequences of losing self-control can lead to unnecessary carnage. But having that arrogant coyote commanding the situation like that was enough to at least make me bite back verbally. I see there weren't no point coming here in the first place. This whole thing is a farce. Well, this ain't over, and I ain't afraid of no gelding lawman who can't even run his own town. I turned and stalked toward the door. Before I left, I turned back. And mark my words, nothing's changed. If one of you, just one, sets foot on my property, they won't find enough of him to bury. I guarantee you that. My instinct was to head straight back to the ranch. It wasn't a good idea for the locals to get used to seeing me around, in case they remembered my face. But I'd already stuck my neck out, and it would have been even more suspicious not to stop at the saloon on the way out. Aside from which, I really needed a drink. I ordered a whiskey and gingerly took a sip. Alcohol is always hit or miss with me, depending on who I am at the moment. Some bodies are teetotalers with no tolerance at all. Some are drunks and things can spiral out of control. Once I was allergic to this stuff, spending several days sick after the fact. Fortunately, Sal could handle the booze, so I knocked the first one back and ordered another. I was well into my third when Sheriff Maxwell tracked me down, after the debacle in his office, I wasn't surprised. Another reason for hanging around. At least a secondary one. 
Thought maybe you'd lit out of town to get ahead of that crowd, he said as he slipped onto the stool next to me. Good you didn't. I wanted a word. I snorted, not even looking at him. Pretty obvious they ain't going just yet. Guys like that, they know when a threat's serious. They'll roll around town for a while, get people riled up, and add a couple more guns to the posse just in case. They're no good unless they think they're in command. But y'all know that already, right? Sharp as a tack you are. Got my number right off the bat. And theirs, too. Wish I'd been so quick when they were giving this job to me. I'd have told them to hit the trail. So what are you doing here, then? I asked. If you got no power, there's no point jawing with some crazy broad up against whoever runs this town, right? He paused. Well, I don't know about all that. There's something about you tells me you won't go down that easy. And if you don't, there's a chance something might shift in this town. I ain't no hero. Maybe not. Might not need one. Just someone ornery enough to give this place the kick in the pants it needs. I didn't answer taking another drink instead. I got someone here you might want to meet. She's worth listening to. I turned, paying attention for the first time to his companion. When they came in, there was so little threat to her that I barely noticed, and wrote her off as unimportant. A mistake, I thought. The kind that gets a body in trouble. She was a lean, strong-looking woman, surprisingly fit given the clearly pricey gear she wore. Unlike the other women in town, she chose denim over dresses. But it was so much higher quality than the folks who wore them for work owned. It might have been from another world. Deep inside, I felt my body react to the sight. No question she was pretty, but in a slightly boyish sort of way that sent a jolt through me. No doubt sped along by the whiskey. The part of me that's always analyzing myself perked up. Apparently my body swayed that way and the stranger in front of me was just its type. I stored the information away and resolved to seek out a professional willing to dress up like that next time I went to the big city. Always a good idea to satisfy your body's needs, even those sort of needs. This here's Laura Camden, the sheriff said, interrupting my thoughts. She's daughter of Boss Camden, the man who really runs this town. A pleasure, she said, extending a hand to me. I took it and unsurprisingly felt another jolt. I was going to have to make that visit sooner rather than later, I thought. So you're the princess of town, are you? I asked, a bit derisively. She gave me a look in response. Not by choice, she said. But yes, my father owns most of the property in town and never lets anyone forget it. Neither do his goons, but I gather you've met a few of them already. Jed, I said remembering the scene in the sheriff's office earlier. He'd be the leader of those goons, I'd wager. Sounds like you've got a pretty sweet deal, as his heir. I want none of that, she shouted, causing a few heads to turn. She continued in something closer to a whisper, but just as intense. I despise that man. Everything he's done, every shady deal or citizen he's hurt, it offends me to the core. There is nothing I want more than to see his power taken away from him, even if it leaves me penniless. You must understand that. All right, all right, I said. But what do you expect from me? I'm no lawman, and the guy that is can't do anything either. She shook her head. You're caught up in this affair with the natives, aren't you? I need someone I can trust to see what's going on. There's far more to all this than a simple murder. I'm certain of it. 
If she had more to say, it was drowned out by the saloon doors flinging open and a booming voice calling out, Good day, everyone. It's good to see you all here. Ah, Sheriff Maxwell, just the man I wanted to see. And the lovely Miss Camden, an unexpected pleasure. The owner of the voice was a large, strong man with confidence to spare, wearing what was clearly a military uniform, a captain to judge by the insignia, which made him the man in charge of the unit based nearby, in order to keep general order in the region. On paper, at least. The reality was that they were for intimidating the natives and keep them from straying off their lands. He strode over to my group as if the floor was privileged to receive his heavy footsteps. He thrust a hand in my direction, a broad grin on his mustached face. Dakota Sal, I believe. Haven't had the pleasure. I'm Captain Snee, Lucas Snee. Not sure you're having it now, I replied doubtfully, taking his hand nonetheless. He swooped down to kiss the back of mine in a dramatic but ultimately misplaced gesture. Perhaps you're right. This isn't an occasion for pleasure of whatever sort. Two people have been murdered, and we must get to the heart of the matter. To that end, I must insist that you allow passage through your ranch without further violence. Is there some way we could make that happen? I said my piece, I told him. It's the long way around or nothing. He shook his head. Well, that just simply won't do. We have to track the killer back the way they went, and there's only one way. No way. I don't trust that posse that showed up on my doorstep not one bit. They ain't welcome at my place. Unexpectedly, Snee's face brightened. Well, if that's all that's bothering you, I believe we can come to an arrangement. If you agree to allow passage... I will personally escort those men, along with some of my own, to make certain they're on their best behavior. And to sweeten the deal, you can come along for the ride, so you can make certain they caused no damage. What do you say? I glanced over at Laura, who gave a nod in return. I sighed. Don't see much alternative, I said. Come by my place when you're ready, and we'll ride out. The mood of the posse was hardly what I was expecting. It was as if most of the members had forgotten all about the murders that started all this mess, and they were relaxed, even jovial, as we rode from the Ferguson place. The house was largely intact, not burned as I would have expected. But if it were, no one would have seen the arrows prominently embedded in the door frames and wall, or the discarded tomahawks, all of them in good condition, I didn't mention any of this to my companions, however. In fact, I didn't speak to them at all, and rode a little apart from the group, watching them as they bantered. None of them seemed to care about the trail, riding past trail markings left by those natives who had business with the Rutherfords before all this tragedy began. As we passed the place I'd been that rainy night, my mind went back to the strange figure I saw crossing my part of the range. They were definitely carrying something. That much fit the story of marauding Indians, but nothing else made sense. Why would someone who knew this land well, and was used to the dark of night without the benefit of street lamps, bother with a miner's lantern? Where would they even come by one? And why would a people who could read the sky far better than any of the townsfolk, or me for that matter, choose to go raiding with bad weather on the horizon? And why, I thought suddenly, were they alone? 
not that I had answers. In fact, by the time all the questions formed in my mind, we were already coming up on the encampment. Snee rode out ahead, even though Jed and his boys were eager enough to just charge on in. His men followed, and I could see a stir among the natives as we came close. I had something of a soft spot for the natives hereabouts. We had an understanding and treated each other with respect, but there was more to it, all thanks to their medicine man. He was younger than I would have expected for his position in the tribe, but his perception and knowledge were remarkable. Remarkable enough that, unlike the others, he knew what I was on sight. You are a hunter of men, he said, in his own language, even though you wear the flesh of one as we would the skin of a buffalo. I was shocked, to say the least, and afraid as well. Not that they would have been able to destroy me, but knowledge of my existence would attract those who could. Human hunters who tracked my kind, with the weapons and knowledge they need to cause me great trouble. So I asked him, What will you do, now that you know me? He laughed. Do? What does one do with the wolf or coyote? With the rattlesnake, who kills men as surely as you? We do not meddle in their affairs, and take care not to provoke them. Are you not afraid I will feed upon your tribesmen? No, no, he said, waving a hand. You hunt those who are alone and unaware, and we are too interwoven to be taken unnoticed. We are not your prey. I had to admit he was right. That's why I came to such a remote place to start with. Lone travelers, far from civilization, rustlers and criminals on the run, they wouldn't be missed or, at least, would be assumed to have met with misfortune of their own making. A beast I may be, but not an indiscriminate one. By now, Snee's men had rounded up the natives to stand in the middle of the camp while the posse was given free rein to search their tents. They made a show of moving from one to the next, but I noticed from the start that they didn't put in much effort to do a thorough search. It seemed more for show than anything. It took five tents before one of the members— Jed himself, interestingly enough, ducked behind it and rummaged in the scrub bushes there. He gave a triumphant cry before trotting back with a package in his hands. Look what I found, he called, and I saw it was a jewelry box. Not very big and hardly ornate, but it was unmistakably not native craftsmanship. He held it over his head while the natives themselves looked on, baffled by what they were seeing. Jed made a show of opening the box and showing off the contents, which had to be the late Mrs. Rutherford's belongings. By now it was clear to me the whole mess was farce, played out mostly for my benefit, and those posse members who actually thought they were doing justice. Unlike myself, they seemed to be eating it up. It was enough for Snee, certainly, and he turned to the native group. Who lives here? Send them forward. A small group of four including a child, came to the fore. We did nothing, one of them said, but he was cut off as Snee's men surrounded them, ropes ready for binding. This is an act of aggression by your people, he told them, and you will be dealt with harshly. He waved a hand, and his men started to drag the four away with unnecessary roughness. You can't, shouted one of the men, who rushed toward them. What they were hoping to accomplish was beyond me, but their sincere hope to protect was clear. Snee did not flinch. Instead, he calmly drew his revolver, 
and without hesitation shot the man, who immediately fell to the earth, dead. The crowd was aghast, and even some of the posse seemed a bit surprised. He trained his weapon on the larger group of natives. Further attempts to harm army personnel will be dealt with even more harshly. You filth are lucky I don't gun you all down right now. He turned to his men. Come on, get them moving. We'll take them into the base for questioning and punishment. With that, he turned his horse and started back the way he came, with the posse following, and the poor natives, still bound, being forced to run after. I brought up the rear, slowly, with one apologetic glance back at the natives. It was a dog and pony show start to finish, I ranted, relating the whole experience to Laura and Sheriff Maxwell. The whole thing was a setup. Sure sounds like it, said Maxwell. And honestly, I wouldn't put it past Camden to set his boys to a stint like this. Laura was livid and paced in her agitation. I can't believe Father would do something like this. And why? What does he get out of all this cruelty? I watched her rant along those lines for a bit. Not that I couldn't sympathize. The rage that was building me as I followed the posse back was intense, and almost enough to do something foolish. It would have been a mistake to give in to my bloodlust, but I certainly wouldn't have regretted it. At least not until the hunters came, and I was forced to flee and find a new body. Instead, I left the group as soon as it was past my ranch, leaving them to continue on to the army base. They wouldn't have let me in anyway, and I wasn't in the mood to watch the poor natives being abused further along the way. So I came back to the sheriff's office, where Laura was conveniently waiting, and filled them in on everything. What happened that day, the figure in the rain, my suspicions, all of it. That had to be Jed, you saw, Maxwell said. He's a real piece of work, that one. He'll stab you in the back and laugh while doing it, then stab you in the front for good measure. Wouldn't surprise me if he killed the Rutherfords personally. Laura's rage had calmed down a bit by now, to where she was merely seething. He's been doing father's dirty work for a long time, she said. I've always hated him, and I don't think even father likes him all that much. I don't have any proof that he's killed anyone, but I know he's hurt a lot of people pretty bad. Take it from me, said Maxwell. He's done his share, but your father's kept it quiet. I sat back. Not that there's any doubt he's behind all this somehow, but the question remains, why? Jed might be a murderer and a thug, but he's not acting alone, is he? No, you're right. Maxwell thought about it for a bit. Boss Camden ain't the sort of man to just make mayhem for no reason. And his only reason is power and profit, neither of which he gets by killing the Rutherfords. He's got an angle here, but blamed if I know what it is. The group of us were silent for a while, each of us thinking the matter through in our own way. To be honest, with the bloodlust Jed and Snee set off in me earlier, I wasn't thinking terribly clearly at that point, and my own thoughts revolved mainly around bringing mayhem back to its source, especially Jed. It was Laura who spoke up first. I don't know what Father is up to, or how he hopes to profit from all this, but I'm going to find out. I doubt just asking him will do you much good, said Maxwell. She shook her head. I know where he hides his personal papers, and I can get in given a chance. There's no way he wouldn't have records of whatever deal this is in aid of. 
Trouble is, his men keep an eye on the big house, inside and out, and they'll definitely be keeping watch tonight after today's trouble. So what you need is someone to draw them off. Yes, but it would need to be a pretty big distraction. That's the problem with just the three of us. Well, just the two of you, that's not enough. And I'm not about to ask you to put your life at risk for something like this. I stood up and stretched. Don't worry about it, Laura. Maxwell, you can take it easy tonight. It'll be a busy day tomorrow and you'll need your rest. I can't ask you to... You don't need to, I said with a grin. This? I'll do for nothing. It was by sheer good fortune there wasn't a full moon that night. In fact, there was only a sliver of it in the sky, not nearly enough to see by even if there weren't lamps lit nearby at the Camden house. Laura wasn't kidding when she called it the big house, the largest structure in town. It was ridiculously palatial for a fairly small town servicing a network of ranches. But here it was, a sprawling mansion guarded by the worst thugs in the region. Camden, or possibly Camden's father, had a taste for the ostentatious. Not that I was here to admire or critique the architecture, but it did occupy my mind while I shucked off my clothing out back of a stable down the road a ways. I wouldn't want to get blood on any of it after all, and besides, with the games I meant to play tonight, there wouldn't be much left worth wearing. So I stashed them in a safe spot, took a knife in my hand, and set out for the house. As eager as I was, the knife was my concession to keep in a low profile, if only a small one. I could have done without it, but I needed any kills tonight to look like they were done by human hands. Tearing them to pieces would have been satisfying, even liberating given my usual abundance of caution, but that would be enough to bring hunters sniffing around for sure. The last thing I'd need. There was a good deal of ground to cover, so I stretched my legs, feeling the flesh lengthen and alter as I did so. My arms, too, gained in reach allowing for a loping, all-fours gait that allowed me to gallop with a great deal of speed. I'd probably need more limbs once I got there, but those could be extruded on the fly. Without realizing it, my jaw strengthened and lengthened, the teeth growing larger and sharper in response to my anticipation. As I came close, my pupils grew, allowing the sliver of moonlight to make it seem like daytime. Doing so gave a shine to everything that I always enjoyed. Although I imagine humans would find it unsettling, it suited me, though. This was my element, and my instincts reveled in it. Skulking through the darkness, I spied my first target. A bored lackey of Jed's, not suited at all to guard duty, had found himself a cozy little corner of the grounds out of sight where he could slack off for a bit. More fool he since monsters roamed this night. It was a simple matter to sink the knife in, with a hand covering his mouth so no scream escaped. The act of killing felt good, even if a little unsatisfying when I wasn't allowed to feed. To be honest, I hadn't had many good opportunities to hunt recently, so this would have been a welcome meal. But tonight had a purpose beyond self-satisfaction, so I had to settle for what fun I could get. Reaching down the corpse's body, I found his pistol and drew it with a hand no longer suited for the task. No matter. All I needed was some noise, and I fired it twice into the air, and then a third for good measure, before casting it aside and slipping back into the night. 
Sure enough, men came running to see what the ruckus was about and were shocked to find their friend dead. That set them on alert, the perfect state with which to pick them off. They had no idea what they were dealing with. As expected, they started out strong. All of them were on high alert, which probably would have been enough to save them if I were a normal human. Too bad for them that I'm not, and was in the mood to show off a bit. All in all, there were a good dozen men, all armed and ready for trouble. Probably a handful more in the house, either not on shift or just not roused yet. If this diversion were to be successful, I'd have to do better than that. I wanted to do better than that. So I slipped off to one side of the group until I was able to find one without a light nearby, and silently dispatched them. Then I was off, skirting around the whole area, to take out another just as the first was being found. That was enough to get them rattled. Now it was time to take things up a notch. Every man there was now on high alert, seeing three of their seemingly untouchable number dead in only a few minutes by some unseen, silent enemy. But that was only the first step. Now I needed them to panic. Putting a little tension on my sides, I was able to extrude two smaller limbs, which would be handy when it came to scuttling along the ground, but more importantly to provide a more terrifying silhouette. Once accomplished, I looked for a man with a light, snatching up a rock along the way. I've hunted humans for a long time, longer than this country has even existed. There are things I've learned about the capabilities of humans. So when I set out to move just barely within sight of one of the gunslingers, but far enough out that they couldn't get that good a look, I knew just where to go. The half-scream he gave when I darted across his field of vision a blob of shadow shaped like nothing he'd ever imagined, was incredibly satisfying. I threw my stone in his direction as I moved, setting off a panic reaction, and he pumped four shots off in my general direction. Nothing that endangered me, but enough to rattle him and his fellows. Fading away, I repeated the process elsewhere along their line, and then searched for lone stragglers who weren't covered by other friends. They got the knife, and this time I wasn't gentle or silent about it. Their screams echoed, drawing more men from the house. The next hour was carnage. Thug after thug fell, the terror caused by this otherworldly beast who seemed immune to bullets, or at least was too fast to hit, overwhelmed Camden's men, who had never faced anything more difficult than scared ranchers and cowed lawmen, but fancied themselves powerful. I showed them, one at a time. They weren't. Jed I left for last. Oh, he was there. And to his credit, he kept his head at least a little better than the others. That's why he was the leader, I guess. I drew him away from the house a ways, making sure we wouldn't be seen. I had something special in mind for this sneering bully. A bit of personal fun to finish off the night. Dancing at the edge of his lamplight, a waterproof miner's lamp, I noticed. I led him down to a nearby gully, already drying out from the rain a few days ago. And there, I revealed myself to him, in all my glory. Coming up from behind, I knocked the gun from his hand, breaking his arm in the process. He dropped his lamp from the shock of it, although it stayed lit somehow. And then down he went into the dirt with my weight atop him, pinning him with legs and extra hands. 
I reared up and howled as he looked upon me with the purest terror he had ever known, my jaws splitting open into four to underline how monstrous I truly was. I reveled in his screams. And then, as punchline, I took up his gun and shot him with it. I may be a monster, but I still have a sense of humor. As I reverted back to human form and went to retrieve my clothes, I glanced back at the big house. If that wasn't enough distraction for Laura, nothing on this green earth would be. The next day, in Sheriff Maxwell's office, I couldn't help yawning. It had been a long while since I'd shifted that much, and what with how long it had been since I allowed myself to feed, it took a lot out of me. All I wanted to do was get some sleep, then ride out to the city and take down a cut purse in some alley somewhere. But my curiosity got the better of me, and I wanted to see this affair put to bed before I put myself there. So that's the plot, eh? said Maxwell, looking over the documents Laura brought in. She nodded. It's all there. Father had his eyes on the lands the natives own, and this was his chance to profit off it. Is the railroad such a big deal? I asked, a bit blearily. You bet your boots. Railway is a ticket to prosperity for any town it runs through, and we're just big enough to raid a whistle stop. If it don't, we run the risk of business moving on to where it goes instead. Could make or break a town. He's right, said Laura. The trouble is, the most efficient route in town from where the track runs now would go right through native land. The government isn't going to appropriate that without a good excuse, so Father cooked up this scheme to get rid of them. I snorted. With how people in these parts look at the natives, he knew what he was doing. You might be more open-minded, but most of the folks I run into don't even see him as human. They wouldn't weep if they were wiped out, that's certain. I wish I could say you were wrong, she said. But even so, double murder and arranging a massacre are far too high a price to pay. I nodded in assent. Guess it's all over but the shouting. You've got this, Maxwell, so I'll... Just then there was a banging that sounded like the world was ending. And then in barged the man of the hour, Boss Camden himself. He was dressed like a parody of a baron of industry, with a ridiculous waistcoat and boots that never set foot on a trail since they were bought. He was a fat, red-faced man with more airs to put on than a fleet of balloons, and he was blasting all of it at the sheriff. What in the name of Joe's trumpet is going on in this town, Maxwell? He thundered. My estate was under attack last night, and those damned Indians were behind it. Mark my words. Fifteen men, dead as doornails, even poor Jed. I demand to know what you're planning to do about this. For his part, Sheriff Maxwell just sat behind his desk. Well now, Camden, I don't rightly know. Ain't you the one what calls the shots in this town? Why don't you do something? Don't you push me, Maxwell, if you know what's good for you. I demand you act like a lawman for once and deal with the situation. As this town's most prominent citizen, it is your duty to make sure I am safe and secure. Well, ain't that a switch, said Maxwell with an easy chuckle. All this time... You and your boys acting like the law around here, and now that you haven't got them backing you up, you come crying to me. Tell me, Camden, who sent the last sheriff to his grave? One of your boys, wasn't it? And they kept me from getting a proper deputy for years now. 
Well, what are you suggesting, Maxwell? Listen, if you, you know what's good for you. Oh, I know what's good for me. What's been good for me was not standing up to you when your boys had put a bullet in me if I tried. Well, you can't hide behind them now, can you? In fact, what's good for me right now is putting your sorry ass in a cell and sending for the marshal to come from the city to oversee you hanging for what you've done. By now, Camden was as red as a beet, and I imagined I could see steam coming from under his collar. Heck, with my eyes, if I tried, I probably could. As it was, I saw his hands twitch once, twice, and then dart for his belt where a derringer was holstered, one he's obviously not used in a long time. Sheriff Maxwell moved with surprising speed, even from my point of view, leaving his chair and vaulting over his desk in one smooth motion. The impact of his fist on Boss Camden's face was every bit as satisfying as what I did last night, maybe even more so from Maxwell's point of view. It only took that one hit, and the wealthiest man in town spun around and hit the ground hard, knocked senseless by the attack. Maxwell disposed of the Derringer and pulled his own more hefty hardware, training it on Camden. Get up, you worthless sack of meat. Much as I want you to give me an excuse to use this, I actually believe in the law. You're going away for a long time. Now get your ass back to the cell before I give you another tap, and I won't be so gentle the next time. Surprisingly biddable, Camden managed to stumble to his feet and was led back to the cells. Muncie was gone. I gave Laura a glance. She wasn't betraying a lot of emotion. You okay with this? I asked. It ain't easy, she said evenly, watching your own kin fall like this. But there's no denying he deserved it. All that's left is to take this evidence over to Captain Snee at the army base and have him call off the raid on the natives' camp and release the captives he took. He won't like it, I said. The man's got no love for them. But he should listen to the law. Well, you two have fun with that. For me, I had a busy night and I could use 40. Well, make it 80. It felt like months since I'd been home, and nothing in the world looked as good to me as that bed did right then. After the distraction I caused the night before, I was far too energized to sleep, and it was catching up with me in a hurry. Not that all my shifting on an effectively empty stomach helped much. If I were smart, I would have dragged one of Camden's henchmen off somewhere, but it was too big a risk. Better that they think it was someone out for revenge, or maybe something the sheriff could cover up. Either way, there was nothing to connect all that with me, and I could find prey elsewhere at my leisure now that the whole affair was dealt with. Falling into bed, I mused that while I was in the city I could also make that brothel trip, find a willing girl who fit the same bill as Laura, and satisfy two sorts of appetite on the same trip. Call it a reward of sorts, for heroically saving both a village and town. It was with this happy thought that I started to drift off, only to be shocked awake by a banging on the door. Cursing myself for not even sensing their approach, I flung open the door to find a cowboy I vaguely recognized. It only took a couple of seconds of straining to remember that he was part of the posse who'd come to my place the other day looking for permission to cross my lands. Not one of Camden's boys, just someone caught up in his plot. Fighting back the temptation to pull him inside, devour him and go back to bed, I just glared. 
He shifted around, a bit uncomfortable. Um, Miss Dakota? That's you, right? Yeah, it's me. What do you want? Ah, uh, I'm right sorry about what happened, Miss Camden. I caught up with her when she and the sheriff were riding out to the army camp. She told me all about it and what her dad went and did. Great, I said. You're forgiven. Now run along. That ain't it, he blurted out. I didn't come for that. It's something more important. Miss Camden, they took her. She said, come get you, you'd know what to do. I stared. Wait, what happened to Laura? Who took her? The cowboy gave himself a shake. Captain Snee, he did. She and the sheriff, they were going to get him to call off the raid on their engines, seeing as they did nothing wrong. But instead, he had his men tie him up and take him away. I hung back, so he didn't see me, but I heard him saying that they're still going to march on the tribe and wipe them all out. For a second, all I could do was run through all I'd seen in my head. Then it all clicked, and all I could do was swear. So I did. Snee was smooth and confident, but when he shot that native in front of me, one thing became clear. Something that I'd put out of my mind, what with all the other things going on. He relished the act. There was no time to waste. Listen, I told the cowboy, whose name I neither knew nor cared about. You get out and warn those natives up the way. Maybe they can get out of the army's way or something. I don't know. I'm going to see what I can do at the camp, although I don't know what good I'll be. Now get. It was late afternoon by the time I made it to the camp, coming up from a blind angle that I hoped their sentries would miss me on. Fortunately, sneaking and stalking aren't really different skills, and I had plenty of experience with the latter. I doubt they were expecting an assault in any case. The natives wouldn't dream of breaking in like this, especially given that Snee had hostages. It would have been foolhardy, especially after he already murdered one of them in cold blood. So I made it in without much incident. My first aim was to find the stockade, which didn't take long. Army camps don't have the most complex layouts in the world, and prisoners are usually kept away from the walls. So it was here, and I was able to get close enough to get a good look at the occupants. Only four, including one child. That made me curse again, this time inaudibly. It would have been simpler if they were there, since it would only take a non-lethal sort of distraction to allow access. It was good that the natives hadn't been harmed, at least not yet but it meant I'd need to search for where my targets were taken. It had to be one of the permanent structures erected at one end of the camp. I doubted they would have been taken just anywhere, and if Snee wanted to keep their evidence hidden so as to not jeopardize his own plans, there was only one place they'd go, his personal office. Trouble was, I didn't know which building that was in. It took a lot of effort and even more luck to stay hidden while I made my way to that end of the camps and figured out which one it was. More than once I had to scuttle under cover or flatten myself against walls so as not to be seen. I'm sure at least once only the glare of the slowly setting sun saved me, forcing someone passing by to avert their attention from my position. In the end I finally found it, at the end of the row, making my way to the back of the building where the soldiers wouldn't be looking for interlopers. Finally, in a position of relative safety, I made my way to the window, which was fortunately ajar. You two are prize fools, you know that? 
Sneeze voice, which carried a note of amusement. Did either of you take even a moment to wonder where that fool Camden learned about the railroad project maybe coming this way? He may be a big fish here, but he doesn't have that kind of contact with the government. There was no answer, save for the sound of shuffling movement and Sneeze's footsteps. I could picture the scene, Laura and Maxwell bound and gagged, probably on the floor, while Snee paced and gloated in front of them. He was a man with a flair for the theatrical, so this was definitely his element. Camden was a useful tool, although I imagine he thinks the same of me. However, I see that he's conveniently been taken down a few pegs. That works in my favor. Once the two of you are out of the way, I'll just have to tie up that one little loose end, and no one will be able to tie anything back to me. Nice and tidy. I had a low tolerance for smug murderers, as my experience with Jed recently reminded me. Captain Snee, however, he was a step beyond that, and I found myself loathing him. And you want the funniest part of all this? Beyond your foolish mistake of handing all the evidence over to me, that is, it's that the government never planned to route the railway through Indian lands at all. Isn't that hilarious? But your old man believed it, and he was willing to kill his own people for the chance to make a few bucks off that fantasy. He moved across the floor, presumably looming over one of the captives, although I couldn't really tell for sure. It was all a ruse. The railway is coming, but that's not important. What matters is I have a chance to wipe those filthy savages off the face of the earth. Well, maybe not all of them, but some will do, for now. I've been looking for a chance ever since that humiliating defeat. Well, it doesn't matter now, does it? I'll have my revenge on that battle on the local trash. After all, one Indian is as good as another, right? And I'll certainly never have a chance like this again, so I mean to take it. My contempt for this man grew by the moment. Was there nothing to him that was not defined by hatred and evil? And I recognized the irony of a literal monster making such a statement, but there he was, not only inhuman in word and deed, but proud of the fact. It was in moments like this that I understood why that medicine man wasn't afraid of me. It was men like this who were to be feared. Ah, but it's growing late. Time to wrap this up. It's a pity I can't simply let you go, but your childish ideas of justice and trying to protect those animals would only get in my way. So this is the end of the line. Don't worry. I'll be sending you lots of company in the afterlife. Very soon indeed. As I heard the sound of a pistol being cocked, I realized that I had a decision to make. I could stop this. Snee's plans, the threat to Laura and Maxwell's lives, the last culprit behind the Rutherford's murder. All of it. But the price would be my life as Dakota Sal, and the safe, comfortable life I'd made at the ranch. Everything would be gone, and I would be on the run from hunters once again, because this time, unlike at the Camden house, there would be witnesses. It was a heavy decision, but it took no more than half a heartbeat to resolve it before I was through the window and upon Snee. I couldn't stand by and let him end so many lives. My own morality would not stand for it, actively recoiled away from the thought. Instead, I threw all caution to the wind and acted. This time there was no stop in my instincts. 
The shifting of the night before when I killed Camden's men had strained me to the point where I was ravenous. I needed to feed, and the effort of making this one desperate attack brought that forward so strongly there was no way to resist. There wasn't even time for Snee to scream, as much as I would have liked to make him suffer. My jaws were through his throat before he could have made a sound, and the claws of a half-dozen arms tore him to pieces, which were devoured with a desperation I have rarely felt. So deep was my hunger that some of my arms developed mouths of their own, lapping up blood from every surface, desperate for every single drop, every bit of marrow, every scrap of flesh. It was as if I needed, on the deepest level, to erase Captain Snee from existence. And soon, that is exactly what I accomplished. When it was over, I managed to revert with some effort back to human form, my clothing in tatters, and breathing heavily. I felt satisfied, energized even. It was as if I were given water in the desert. My whole being was revitalized. I stood, luxuriating in the feeling, for long moments before finally looking down, remembering that I was still not alone. Laura and Maxwell were there, bound as I expected. Their eyes were wide, and they were understandably afraid. There was nothing in either's experience that could compare to what they just witnessed. I'm going to release you, I told them. Try not to scream. Somehow both managed to nod in response. I would have expected them to be terrified and trying to flee by this point, but they kept still while I used a razor-sharp claw to sever both their bindings. Then I moved to the far side of the room and sat while they regained their bearings. Don't worry, I said softly. Once we're out of here, I'll be leaving. You'll never have to see me again. What, what are you? Laura managed to ask her voice unsteady. I thought about how to answer that. I don't rightly know myself, but I've been around a long while, and there are others too, and there are people who hunt things like us. They'll be along presently, once word gets out something like me is around. I don't recommend getting too close to them. They're not nice folks. Maxwell found his own voice. Why didn't you kill us too? That would have solved your problem, right? You're sharp as a pin, I said, but that ain't my way. You and Laura, you're good folks. The natives, too. Couldn't live with myself if people like that got hurt. That's why I'll be out of your hair tonight. Guess you can find the deed to my place if you look around a bit. It'll be my gift. There was silence between us then, and both Laura and Maxwell looked at each other. They seemed to come to an understanding from only that and when they looked back, the fear I saw in them had ebbed away. They were still cautious, and all too aware I wasn't like them, but somehow it reminded me of that medicine man. His eyes were like that, too. "'Way I see it, there ain't no need for you to go nowhere,' said Maxwell. "'See, we had ourselves blindfolded by that Sneefeller, and we didn't see a blamed thing. Heard him step out?' and no idea where he got himself off to. Why, you're right, Sheriff, added Laura. In fact, the last time I saw Sal, she was headed home to bed. I assume she must still be there. I stared at the both of them for a while, and they grinned back at me. Shaking my head, I said, 
There ain't no reasoning with fools. Fine, fine. You win. I'll be Dakota Sal for y'all a while longer. Long as you keep your fool mouths shut, I can be your monster. Now let's get out of here before those army fellers start wondering where their captain went. Kelsey N. is a proud Canadian woman living in the nation's capital, Ottawa. She has been everything from an office worker to a home care aide to a dishwasher to an animation student, before finally dedicating herself to writing. Several of her short stories are available for free on her website, The Book of Kells. This has been a production of the Brick Moon Fiction Podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts, as it helps us find a bigger audience. For more information on Brick Moon and special offers, Sign up for the Brick Moon Fiction newsletter at brickmoonfiction.com. Thank you for listening.